who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown, let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Welcome back to another episode of Mother May I Sleep With Podcast. But this episode is not like any of our other episodes. We've never done this before. I have Jessica Janos with me today. You guys definitely know her work from Suburban Swingers Club. She has also done a great movie that I just watched today, Stolen in Plain Sight, as well as a movie I have yet to see called Seduced. She has another movie that she's working on for a lifetime right now. Jessica, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I, I have to tell you, so the way that you and I started talking was you slid into my Instagram DMs after hearing our review of Suburban Swingers Club, which I'm so appreciative that you had such a great attitude about it. And you just started to tell me a, a lot about your experience directing these movies. And to be frank, it went so much further than I would have thought just in terms of how much thought and care you put into developing your characters and into developing the world that it really w- it made sense to ask you to come on and for you to be our first official filmmaker on the podcast. So thank you for being here. When you reached out to me, I was just so appreciative of you being even open to listening to the show and let alone, you know, continuing to converse with me and fill me in on your experience. And one thing I, I found to be so interesting about our initial conversation was that you got into the lifetime game because you were a filmmaker on your own and you wanted more people to actually see your movies. And you were the one who astounded me with the statistic that about 10 million people in the first month of a movie being out get to see it. Yeah, that's what I heard. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but that's the um, that's what I heard from from someone. And I wouldn't doubt it because they play, you know, they repeat them over and over and over again when they play on Lifetime or Lifetime Movie Network. And so many people see them and they have such a huge following. So I, I just love that 
I think from the beginning of when I got into making art in general, the idea of making art that people actually saw, I think that kind of really fit in with, with these movies. And that's why I respect them so dearly. Yeah. So this is maybe a little bit, I don't know if this is a flattering comparison or not, but I, um, briefly worked in a field that sort of got me adjacent to the pornography world. And I realized on the set of a porn shoot that I was on that every single person there was just as sort of studied and interested in the art of filmmaking as any other film set you could go to. This is just a place you can practice those tools all the time. And so I think that like there's validity in this industry that's not spoken enough about in terms of just being able to make something practically that other people are going to see. Right, exactly. I mean, these films um, have a huge influence on people and people love them so much. And I think that they're really cathartic experiences for people. So I really heavily, you know, take what I do seriously, because I'm influencing people's thoughts about things that happen in their own lives. Yeah, I mean, definitely this whole podcast came out of my love for these movies, my deep love for these movies and how I think whether you realize it or not, just about everyone has some sort of connection to Lifetime original movies. It's surprising how many people don't even realize a movie they really like is made by Lifetime. So you've worked with Mar Vista and Real Ones, which are two of, I mean, my favorite. I call them out at the top of every single movie. And they completely internally make these films. Like a writer goes to them, pitches the idea, is hired to write it. And then you're brought in as a director after the fact. Um, What is the difference when you're working with these two different production companies? Because I have theories, but I'd I'd love to hear it from you. Well, actually, they're more like financiers. So what I usually, I'm hired by the producer that they hire. So they might have the script or the producer might've brought them the script. I don't know much about that process because that happens before I'm brought on. But um, what'll happen is those companies will, um, you know, green light a script or green, you know, or they'll get it approved by lifetime or something like that. And then it goes through a production company, which then hires me to make it, um, to, to direct it. And I usually get hired on pretty quickly before, you know, like very, very soon before they start like actual production. So pretty much as soon as I get hired on, you know, within a week, sometimes I'm on location scouts, casting very often has already begun when I'm hired on. Right. Um, So they, uh, yeah, they, I, I don't have much contact with the actual executives at the companies that finance that usually goes through the producer, but they do watch dailies and, you know, they're watching dailies and they're overseeing, you know, what films are being made. Um, And I'll get notes through the producers, like little notes here or there about things or, you know, how things are coming off and, and stuff like that usually. So what is like the length of like pre-production, production, post-production? What is the turnaround for something like that? What was it for Suburban Swingers Club? Um, for Suburban Swingers Club, I think I had about three weeks prep 
um, if I remember correctly. Right. And that would include um, going through casting and then, you know, location scouting and working directly with Ken Sanders. So Ken's, you know, Ken was, is like the person I'm working with on that. Like he's the person who hired me and he's the person who, you know, we're going on location scouts and talking it out. And so he's both the producer and the creative producer. And, you know, in that case, the story creator, um, I think he was also maybe a writer on that one. I'm not sure. But that, you know, so we're looking at the locations. I'm going with their location scouts and, um, you know, watching videos for casting, doing my selects. It's going through executives and all sorts of people. And then we, you know, all that stuff gets locked in. And then, you know, usually, um, you know, I'll meet my, with Ken, you know, we'd meet our cast the night before. We have like a party, uh, not a party, but like a dinner yeah, uh, where everybody gets to meet. And then the next day we start filming. So with Suburban Swingers Club, um, how much of the movie was cast before you joined on? Um, None of it. None of it was actually cast, but the casting process had already begun in the, in that I was already being handed selects from casting. So like, these are the people that we're looking for, or these are the people that, you know, have been pulled by casting. So that process had already begun. And I was just like giving my responses. This person would be good. In that case, I got, you know, the, everybody I wanted, you know, I, they, we got all our cast and I think we had, you know, like, um, it was in a case of, you know, it was, it's very last minute sometimes. I mean, sometimes I think, I think I was like in a casting session, like the day before we filmed, um, locking people in, you know, just because people's schedules. So sometimes we might like somebody, we might go out to them and then they're not available or whatever, you know? So, um, it's a very, you know, hectic process for sure. So I remember you mentioning to me that the actor who played Grant, the husband in Suburban Swingers Club, originally tried out for the role of Noah and you had him come back and read for Grant. Yes, yes, yes. He was I was like, I thought he would be a great Grant. There was something about him. I just saw him as a lawyer and I could just see that that would happen. And and then when he read the you know, when he read the lines for Grant. And I, the, the sides that we had were the scene where, well, I mean, we had several sides, but the sides that we used or that I was judging most intricately was the part where he's trying to convince, you know, um, his wife to go and be in this and and to swing. Right. Right. (laughs) And that he's doing it to save their marriage. And so like, it was basically finding someone who said it to me in a way where I believed that it was coming from a place of love right? Yes, for sure. Right. That I believed him that he wanted, like that he was selling me on this idea that, (laughs) that this was something that he wanted to do to fix his marriage. And, um, yeah, like, I always wonder what the sides are for different auditions. Like that's a game I play with myself is wondering what the audition scene was. And that scene is a little, you know, as a viewer, that's the moment. I think anytime you hear a couple is swinging, right? You think, okay, how was this pitched within the marriage? And at that point, I wasn't totally convinced that Grant hadn't moved into this community because he already had some sort of intel about the swinging. So 
it's interesting because I'm sure there probably were a lot of auditions where the guy just was not selling that this was potentially something that could really change things for them. Right. Because even with the fact of like all these movies are so they're thrillers. So is he telling the truth? Does he know? Does he not know? Is he does he really say it? Does he really mean it or does he not? Those all those things are all up for grabs. Right. But what I need in that moment is I need him to be believable. So his wife believes it. Right. Like he's even if he's lying. He's got to be a believable liar. Like, I got to go, okay, I feel this is real. And yeah, I think a lot of people read it in a real kind of like just, it was read like sort of on the surface. It Mm -hmm. felt like very, you know, like it's a hard line to pull off, right? For sure. Yeah. Overcome the miscarriage. And so now we're going to swing. So, but he, when he said it, like, I just, I go, I believe that. I just have this like internal gauge of like, do I believe it? And I was like, I believe it. I believe him. Like, even if he's not telling the truth, I believe him. He's coming off genuine, you know? So, right. Yeah. Jesse Ruda. Yeah. So that was a, that's definitely like the underpinning of that story is that this is a couple kind of not rebounding. I think that that would be the wrong word, but sort of recovering from this traumatic event with the miscarriage. And one of the things we picked up on in the episode that you actually mentioned to me when we were talking was the playground, like the play set in the backyard that happened to be at the location you rented. Yeah, it was there. So we rented that house and um, it was there. It was just left there and the house was pretty empty. There was some furniture there when we get, it was a great house for, for this the set, you know, and, and the neighborhood, I love that neighborhood too. And we shot the other houses that we shot were in that neighborhood. And, um, it was there. And, you know, for me, like I wanted to kind of play the scene where they walk out. I think the scene was originally about, about you know, how much money that, um, Grant was making, but I think that that was kind of obvious by the house. And so, yes. I sort of shifted it to be about, well, let's, let's deal about the deal with their problems. Right. So how they're, why they've moved here, because obviously, you know, we get the fact that um, Lori is not super excited about moving into this house and she's a little bit, um, you know, ambivalent about it, I should say. And um, so getting this place set there where, you know, I think the way I played it with the actors was just saying like, you know, now you're imagining your who would have been your son or your child playing in this pool and you're there with him and then he's not there and and how is you know grant dealing with it versus lori and grant is avoiding it and upset and he's like get this thing out of here and lori is more like she walks up to it she touches it she's facing she's facing her grief right yeah she's trying to face her grief and she can actually walk up to it touch it face it, talk about it. And Grant just like gets mad and runs away. And, you know, that maybe this buying of the house and all this kind of stuff was about running away from from something that he he didn't want to face. And so she's kind of left alone to face it. Yeah, this movie definitely plays with how these two characters deal with grief a lot, actually. And, And one element sort of in preparation for the roles that these characters or that these actors were playing, you told me that you had them name their child. 
Yeah. So in the scene where she's like digging through the boxes or unpacking, um, or Lori's unpacking, I think originally it was, she was going to find like their wedding photo. Um, and I changed it to a sonogram of a baby. And then I said, you know, like, you know, I work a lot with big production design, like what we can come up with. And we did like a baby naming book. Yeah. And, um, and then I said, I had them write. I had, I had Lori write the name of, of her son on the back of the sonogram in the book so that you could see that they had gotten far enough along in the pregnancy where they were starting to pick names and like this baby had a name and he was a real person to them that he was going to come into the world. And, and, you know, just to sort of emphasize the real tragedy that had happened because, you know, I mean, losing a child in that way or losing a pregnancy in that way can be very traumatic. And so I always want to, you know, a lot of times, you know, lifetime movies or these, you know, romantic thrillers and stuff can be very dramatic and they can use a lot of, um, you know, a lot of these kind of instant, you know, incidents can be used to sort of like be placeholders for like a reason. But I like, I like actually like to dig into the reality of what that's actually like and like play it out throughout the movie and like make them live with it in every scene because that's the reality. It's not just something that's going to take place in one scene and we'll be like, oh, okay, we understand why they moved. And so now we can move on from that. It's like, I make it drag on. You know, right. And- I mean, it's a seemingly small but incredibly effective change because there were a few times where I forgot that that is what they were dealing with. And even when I was rewatching the movie today, when she pulls out that sonogram photo in the baby name book, the idea of that being a wedding photo would have hit totally different. Like, I think that I would have completely lost that storyline. Right. Exactly. And And also, like, you know, it's more specific, you know, like it's more specific to an actual incident that you can see as being the division between them that they're trying to repair, you know, that this thing, what happened, you know, like there could have been a lot of things. There could have been an affair. There could have been someone's illness. There could have been all sorts of things, but that in the story, I always take what's in the script and I'm like, I use it, you know, I'm like, well, there's this thing here. So let's play this out. Let's make this Let's make something of this, you know? So this is maybe a little bit more like just kind of, I don't even know if this is how the sausage is made or maybe it's just more boring, but I always wonder when you guys rent these huge homes to shoot in, are you using like a majority of the leftover rooms as places for production? Yeah. Like sometimes um, in that case. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty common that like we'll use, some of the rooms in a house for like production office or actors dressing rooms and stuff. If we get the big houses, that's pretty common in, you know, in all production. Um, so yeah, like we'll establish the geography of the house. We'll sometimes you're looking at any location. You're like, cause you know, especially when you want to shoot outside, you don't want to have like trailers everywhere. Right. And they're, you know, they're expensive too to keep. And if you don't need them, if you're renting a house, you know, and you can have enough uh, dressing rooms, it's great. So this is a question that comes up a lot, but just in terms of what is actually what you're seeing in a house and the design of a house. And and obviously, Lori and Grant are moving to a new home that's majority empty, but you also see the insides of a lot of other homes in this movie. How does that work? In my mind, it always seems generally like uh, some set designer went to 
you know, I would say home goods. I always go to home goods for some reason in my mind, like three days before the shoot and just started to buy pieces of furniture and knickknacks that made the home feel full. And maybe like people lived there. How does that actually work in terms of design? So like um, most of the time we're in my experience, we've used a lot of just people's homes that yeah. they're actually living in. So a lot of the cases might be, um, because I like to focus, it's not so much like a budgetary concern, but it's more like a time constraint. So what I'll do is I'll focus, I'll, I kind of always have this like lean in, um, like uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. So like if we have this location available, you know, there's a lot of practical things that happen. So like if we have a location available, like when I walk into that location, I say, what can I lean into here that like can work that can, that can, you know, we can use in the story to make this like, rather than fighting against what's available, I work with what's available and like right. lean into it and find the best of it and, and, and make it part of the character and make it part of what's alive. So, um, most of the time, you know, uh, the set design is more about like removing personal objects from, from someone's house and using what's there. And then maybe augmenting that with some, a few pieces here and there that are specific to the story, you know? So like, we're looking for locations that fit the story and can work with the story, but also work within the production of the film. Like, you know, the house needs to be very close because we're shooting, you know, the way the schedule is working and everything like that, like all the houses need to be close or whatever. So in that case, like in that neighborhood, I think all our houses were like just a couple blocks apart. Yeah, it did feel like very much like the development we were told as an audience it was that was very believable that th- these were all homes that existed in the same you know, construction area. Um, I noticed one little thing, which is like when you were going through the house at the very beginning of the movie and Grant is telling Lori's sister all about the great features of the house. This is just something small, but he was going through and saying, you know, there's six, it's a six range oven or, you know, there's, um, or like a six range top to the, I don't know, oven, I don't know what it was, but you were going through details of the house. Do you actually like rewrite that to what the setting is? Yeah, like, so, and this isn't like something that I do as like, it's not like a, a, so the scripts that we, the scripts that we have, we have to, you know, once we get our locations, we, you know, we fit them into the location and that could be like, you know, so, you know, maybe there's a scene that's written in the script that takes place at one thing. And we're like, well, what if we have it take place here? Because, you know, that that's, it's all different things. So uh, I'm making a lot of like on the floor changes or I'll tell the actors, you know, there'll be some lines in there and I'll just like fit them to the, to the scene. Right. Like, what, I'll say, what's this? I'll say like, what's this scene about? Oh, okay. The scene is about them coming in and we're introducing the house. And so, you know, I'm having the scene be about like, well, we're with Lori she's being ambivalent about it. And then, you know, of course, you know, in this, in the script, uh, Grant is, you know, kind of giving a tour of the new house. Um, you know, we're shooting it in that room. So I have him walk in and start pointing things out and I just tell him, you know, just start pointing these things out. And I don't know specifically, I mean, some of those things might've been in the script, but the general idea of the script is being used. 
It's just okay. that because, yeah, so we're using, because that leads out to the pool, that's the room we're shooting the scene in. That's how we have to fit it in. You know, like maybe it was talking about some other element of the house that we're not showing. So I just, yeah, I just tell the actors what to say and we just work it out right before and, and we do it. Cause that's obviously like a very practical rewrite, just describing what it is you see in front of you. Um, but like in terms of being able to put your fingerprints on the movie and the actual writing of it, I know obviously there's writers who do these scripts, but are you, um, are you allowed to kind of change up whatever it is you want once it's your, you know, turn by in the camera? Yeah. I think like for like on the floor changes, like definitely if there's um, the mostly the changes that I'll make are if I, I, I love sticking to the script in a lot of ways. Like I don't like, like what's it, like I go with what's in the script, but that being said, like, let's say we did a scene earlier and, um, in that scene, once we filmed it, it covered a beat. And then we come to a scene that's after that. And it has that beat in the scene. Then we're like, okay, I'll be thinking like, okay, since we already covered that beat, cause you know, like when you film the scene, things happen. And like, and also when you have the actors there doing it, you know, you can relay a lot more information than you may have realized when the script was being written. Right. Of course. So yeah. You might come to a scene and then you're going like, Oh wait, we've already really gone over this beat. So let's make this beat. What can we do here? What is it that we're missing? So I kind of have to be the sort of keeper of the continuity, the character continuity, the story continuity, as well as like, you know, just making sure that like, we're not having scenes that are repetitive, you know, which could happen sometimes when, you know, when you're dealing with the reality of what happens in the scene that was already filmed versus, you know, what's on this on the page. So yeah, like I'll, you know, I'll, we'll talk, you know, the actors and we'll be like, oh, well, we've already kind of hit this. So maybe we should play this a little differently and not, let's not talk about that. Let's, you know what, let's talk about this other thing here. You know, if it's just like, if there's like little, uh, you know, sometimes the dialogue is, you know, it's, it's, it's the subtext of what's going on that I'm really, um, that's really important to me. So making sure that the scene is like moving forward. And, um, but yeah, I can, I can certainly, um, I mean, I don't make any like major changes to anything. I just make like changes to things to keep it moving forward or to fit it into the world that we're shooting in. Yeah. Cause I, I will say one thing that I, I saw in both, um, Suburban Swingers Club, as well as uh, Stolen in Plain Sight, which I, again, I just watched today was I, there's sometimes, um, in both of these movies, there's moments where characters are clearly either like fumbling their words or trying to find them conversationally the way that I think people do in real life, um, notably in Suburban Swingers Club, when Noah says, I'm glad I just didn't burn them instead of I'm glad I didn't just burn them. Um, right. that stuck out to me so much and it, it, to Noah, I feel like it made so much sense with that character. Cause he is sort of, um, a bimbo for lack of better words and seeing him sort of struggle to, to put that out there was, was really interesting. And it was kind of cool that you left it in the movie. Yeah. Like things like that. Um, you know, because the words, like the actual dialogue is important in as far as like 
giving information and giving the, and what the actors are talking about when they're having these conversations. But the subtext of that, I think that scene, I remember that we were meeting about that scene because um, in it, I think the way it was written originally was uh, Noah was coming off very arrogant. And I said, and, and he, we were, you know, we wanted to, and I was like, oh, the problem, I think this is where we fix the scene. We switch it around and let's make Noah really insecure and really like coming off like he's trying to please everybody and be like a really nice guy and like impress people. And he's, you know, he's playing a very self-deprecating way versus like a very boastful, arrogant way. And little things like that, like, like fumbling words or, you know, it, it relays that nervousness or that insecurity, right? Yes. Well, I mean, yes, he was obviously very nervous for his big dinner party in which his wife might as well have been sitting in the backyard in that scene. The way I know. the way they I were was, all seated was like so hilarious to us. Yeah, I, I, I did that um, specifically because I was like, I wanted to, you know, like you do table scenes are very fun to film and, and there are kind of they're one of the scenes that you can get like a lot of can take a lot of time. Um, but what I was thinking was I was like, I want to like, I definitely want to set Noah at the head of the table. Um, and you know, because he's like, so it's almost like count contradicting the way he's coming off, you know? So like setting him at the head of the table between obviously splitting up the husband and wife and then his wife, my whole because she, I mean, I don't want to like, can we do spoiler alert? Oh, I, honey, we can totally spoil. I've long oh, okay. said that I don't think anyone's listening to this podcast for like the big reveal. Like, oh, okay, good, good, good. Okay, that's not another world. So, you know, because obviously, you know, his wife uh, ends up being the, you know, Olivia ends up being the the bad girl, right? She ends up being the the killer. So I was like, I'm going to treat her like a freaking extra, Right. Up until, yeah, like, I mean, she is like being like, just, she doesn't speak. She's always in the background, you know, he's seating her aside. And those are like the little moments where like that great shot where like, um, at the end of the scene where, uh, Grant is like watching, you know, Noah and Lori like laugh and everything like that. And he's getting this like look of jealousy on his face and then in the background, you know, of course, you see Olivia sitting there next to him, like the two kind of jilted spouse, you know, like, right. Like, yeah, they're kind of sitting there together with their own sort of vision of, of like, you know, what what they're seeing. Right. But yet they aren't looking at each other. Right. So you're getting like their impression of like how they're reading this scene, you know, and for Olivia, you can see that she's seen this 100 times and Grant's just starting to be clued in to like what's going down. I mean, so, it couldn't have been um, easy to be Olivia. You know, I understand what got her to that point. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, even I always, that's my feeling of it. You know, like I, I don't believe in just like, Oh, the woman goes crazy for no reason. I believe like we have to show like there, why she's pushed to that point, you know, because she definitely was, you know, I mean, I, 
I have a empathy for, you know, like I want to, I want her to have reason to do what she does. This is like the number one Jody Aris, Jody Arias, like sympathizer group on the internet is my fans over here because we're very, much, <laughs> we very much understand. Sometimes you, you, you know, you have to really push someone to get them to act so outside of themselves. Um, another thing I noticed now, this was a, another little line moment today. And this was when I, I just really liked, um, stolen in plain sight a lot mainly because there was a lot of great character work in it there was this is a world in which you know babies just go missing and it's a strange southern town everyone's very close like you pull your car up to town everyone knows you're there and um the character kayleen says to the lead character um melissa she says something to her when they first meet where she says, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I didn't I didn't want to get off on the right foot. And obviously that's not <laughs> the expression. And it turns out that right. it has a kind of whole double meaning to it in the long run because Kayleen is not the sweet Southern belle that she presents herself to be. And I was right. wondering if that was intentional or if that was just sort of like a flub that happened to work or what that was. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, I would say definitely had, I mean, I'm guessing here, but yes, a flub that, a flub that works for sure, because this film is like very much, how would you say like those scenes like Anne Mahoney, she is a great, great actress. And she, I mean, to say it's a flub is like to say that she's, you know, she's, it's, it seems like maybe the character said something subconsciously. Yeah, like, yes, exactly. So Anne is so great. Like, so she, uh, you just, yeah, she just goes like, she knows, like, I, like I just give like the actors, like what, you know, they know what they're going to do. They have their basic lines and then they just work them in there, you know? So, yeah. So those little moments are fantastic. Like, you know, I let the I let the actors act. Absolutely. You know? I mean, aesthetically, these movies couldn't be any more different. It was actually a little like jarring today because I went into it thinking, OK, it's probably going to feel very similar to Suburban Swingers Club. It's going to have like your touch on it. It couldn't look or feel more different, though. Suburban Swingers Club almost feels not like a sitcom, but it almost feels it's lit completely differently. The sort of atmosphere of the movie is very different. And I was wondering, you know, just in sort of the filming the two movies, like how like how different were your locations? How like what was it working with a cinematographer like? Like, how did you create such different um, universes? Well, still sticking with what I'm sure is similar budget, similar time constraints. Right. So like, yeah, those are very different films in a lot of ways. Um, So Suburban Swingers Club, I think, falls into the genre of what I would call like a romantic thriller. Okay. And I I always think that they're very, the look of them is like very, I always call it aspirational. Like everyone is like going to bed with makeup on. Um, Everyone's always like got a new outfit on. They're always looking really beautiful and gorgeous. Absolutely. Aspirational is a great way to put it. Yeah. Right. Big houses, jewelry, nice cars, everything like, so romantic thrillers have that vibe to them. And then um, with Stolen in Plain Sight, 
that was much more of like from the genre of like, um, you know, someone stole my baby. Right. <laughs> and so that's a little bit more like kind of more like a cabin in the woods horror film a little bit. And they, they did, that's what they played it, you know, with this, um, sleigh bells thing during Christmas, which was like, kind of like the horror film genre of lifetime movies. Um, and it is more of a gritty, uh, piece um in a lot of ways you know and you're dealing with things that are a little bit more you know like the the you know i think sometimes in the romantic thrillers the stakes are usually like based like relational like i'll lose my husband and then and then it gets like life or death right like something's yeah. gonna happen but i think like something like stolen in plain sight it starts out with like you know this like violent like this girl this woman in this really like bad abusive situation with a child. So, and she's got to escape. And then, you know, she comes to this like strange town and I shot that, we shot that in Louisiana. Um, and that's, you know, in Lafayette, Louisiana and the locations there are just like phenomenal, you know, just so much cool, weird stuff there it was really great experience. And, and we had a very different, uh, style in shooting it. Um, you know, we definitely approached it from a much more like, I guess we had a little bit more freedom because it was grittier. Right. Yeah. It's like a grittier looking film. So there's definitely like a lot more freedom that we had to kind of, you know, like shoot with like natural light or source lights and, you know, the look of it just had a, a different feel altogether you know, and we were moving, you know, we did a lot of handheld. I think that whole thing was shot handheld. Yeah. It definitely felt like you were on location where you said you were, whereas I feel like a lot of lifetime movies feel like they're shot in Canada while they're supposed to be somewhere else. And this movie very much felt like I was in the bayou for sure. Um, the casting in this movie was great and I loved all of the different characters. Um, I was obsessed with Janelle who worked at the police station. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ruthie Austin. Yeah. I, I love her. She was so great. Like the casting, um, that we did there was so phenomenal. Just, you know, getting opportunities to work with like all the cast in the South there. And yeah, Ruthie was great. I mean, she was like, you know, when I met her, I was like, oh my gosh, I was obsessed with her voice and, you know, and her character, like I really pushed to be like, like uh, this film was fun because there was like in the script, there was a bunch of small characters. And then I ended up like, I, I always do this. Like I'll take the smallest little character. Like they'll have like the guy at the gas station or something like this. And I'll like make, I'll keep bringing them back or make them bigger, like make them a big part of the story. Like there's no extras or there's no like small characters. Like they're all like, I make them all like really important somehow. So like the scene where she's the one that like gives the, the clue. Oh my God. That was understanding. Great. Yeah. So like, I was like, she's going to be the one to do that. I think, you know, like giving her that like moment and, and just, there was a lot of, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we shot that film pretty fast and there, it was such a great experience. I mean, just everybody involved, um, my cinematographer, Matt Bell and all the cast. I mean, they were just amazing. And Gracie is so good. That's the one good thing about these films 
usually the leads are I guess, you know, they're like a, approved actors or whatever. And a lot of them come from television and have a lot of experience. And all my leads that I've ever worked with have been so phenomenal. Like they can carry their experience and their abilities to just move and get it right and do it right. And like, you know, just so great. And yeah. You know, uh, yeah. You definitely Dana had like exceptional, you had exceptionally strong leads out of the Lifetime movies that I've seen, I felt like you had pretty exceptionally strong leads for both of them. Oh, yeah, they were great. Like Dana's so good. Gracie's so good. I mean, just like just such pros. And and I think that that's such a credit to I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not a part usually of like casting the lead. Um, mm -hmm. But from what I've understood, and I could be wrong, is there's kind of like approved actors that can you know that sounds so, right yeah so they I I'm not usually a part of that I was a little bit more a part of it in um in this film in uh, stolen in plain sight and you know that that was a, a good experience so I learned a little bit more about that process but usually um I come in and the the leads are you know I'm told who the lead is and I think in like a lifetime movie where you really only have a certain amount of time to tell a story, it's the supporting characters that are just so important to casting as well. So in, in some ways, I feel like if for some reason you were stuck with a lead who wasn't super dynamic, you could easily fill out the rest of the cast with great supporting characters. And um, this movie definitely had that you happen to have a great lead but then also i will i'll come back to janelle one more time and just say that you know you kind of think oh god everyone in this town is bad and you have this moment of or i did anyway of like oh but i hope the lady at the police station's nice because she seems really great and then getting to have that moment where she's really kind of a hero of the movie and i think things really pick up after she leads melissa to that clue was really gratifying as a viewer oh good yeah that's what i was hoping i because I, I had that vision i was like oh my gosh i'm gonna make i think because in the script she was yeah she wasn't really written like she was just kind of like a just the secretary and i was like no she's gonna be i don't know I, my actors inspire me like i wanted i i think of my audience first right and like, I respect my audience and I respect the scenarios that happen in the films because these films are filled with all sorts of dramatic situations that happen to real people, you know, like domestic violence, losing a child, you know, all these things are real things. So I first and foremost, make sure that they come from a place of like my experience and like coming from a perspective of like what this is really like. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what would this really be like? Like, you know, like in there, the domestic violence scene, I think it was, you know, she, I think in the script, she maybe went to her sisters and they talked and then she went to a police station and filed a, I'm going to file a report. But I was like, no, I really want to play this out. Like, what is it really like? I, Cause you see it in television and movies all the time. Like a woman gets punched in the face and it's just like, okay, that happens, but what does that really mean to be punched in the face? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that letting her have that opportunity to sort of put her husband in his place by it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a fun one. I, I come, cause uh, we actually shot that in the apartment where I was staying and um, 
I like had this whole thing, like doing the, the lock and all that. Like I came up with this really like elaborate, <laughs> very fun way that she uh, ends up, you know, escaping her husband. But yeah, like then doing the scene with her sister and making her sister the doctor that's like stitching her up and stuff and playing that scene out was really important to me because I was like, you know, like that's a really violent thing that happened to her. And like, right. Yeah. And like that, you know, like that's going to do some damage to your body. I mean, how many, you know, you see like, I mean, not just women, but all sorts of people get punched and beat up in films. And then they just like walk in the next scene. They're just like walking away. You're like, it doesn't really happen that way. You know? Right. It's um, she definitely is like aware of the bruising on her face throughout most of the movie, which I think is, is important too, because yeah, I think a lot of times they just rebound from that sort of thing. And then they're walking around and sometimes people heal very quickly. But I mean, the fact that this woman has like a shiner is completely carried throughout the movie and brought up. I felt at all the right times. Oh yeah. Everybody notices it. Everybody's referencing it. She's always covering it up with her hair. Like she's having to walk around with a black eye, like (laughs) her stitches on her face, you know? I mean, I still made it like, you know, I mean, it's still like, you know, she's, she's, uh, you know, it's, it's understated, but it's still there, you know, it's still something she has to cope with. I have to say you did such a great job with making the audience as frustrated in the right ways as Melissa was when her baby is stolen in the middle of the day at a playground. And right away, you're like, they're like, Come on. I mean, if if a woman says her baby was kidnapped, you got to kind of go with it. And I feel like you did a really good job of sort of making the audience question themselves in a way as well, because I was wondering almost if I had missed something like why everyone was just thinking she was nuts. Yeah, like that was a real I, I think a huge theme in all the in all the lifetime movies I've seen and the ones I've made is gaslighting. And I think this was a great film about gaslighting, right? The whole town is gaslighting her. And also she's, she's just escaped abuse. So she's so primed to be gaslit, right? Like she's escaped to this thing where she's lived in this alternate reality and this horrible situation. And now she's come right into another one. And so she's, you know, looked at through this lens of like being, you know, a liar, being crazy. And and I think that that's something that's cast on women a lot in a lot of situations. So I think playing it out that way, like full force, um, where they literally like put her on like a psychiatric hold um, was fantastic. And then, you know, getting her, getting her revenge then is all the better, you know, and, and, uncovering, you know, and, and in a way, like overcoming what's happened to her, you know, fighting, fighting the uh, craziness of this town. Um, it's, you know, it's fun stuff. And you also captured the unique, well, maybe not so unique frustration that women have when they try to report something to the police where, you know, you're three steps ahead of them, it feels like. And they're still explaining to you that technically (laughs) there's only so much they have to go through proper procedures. And you're like, I know, I know you do. But um, yeah, that scene was really um, with the with the sheriff was really frustrating in a good way. I wanted to fight for her. 
Yeah. And also frustrating, but then in a way, like the way she's acting, she's got the black eye, like people are telling the police officers that there was no baby. So she's like, you know, you're kind of in this situation where you're like, okay, because I'm, I'm always with these, with any thriller, you're, you're on a, a razor edge, right? Like mm-hmm. with the disparity of, of like knowledge and, and who you believe and who you don't believe. So like, you have to, you're always kind of playing both sides at the same time. So like you have to see the sheriff and you see it from the sheriff's perspective and she's looking very unreliable. Yeah. So you're not completely disregarding his reaction. You know, you don't think it's appropriate, but you understand it, right? No, totally. Yeah. Right. So you're just seeing like, okay, obviously if they're saying this woman had no baby, she's, and she's acting the way she's acting and she's covering up a black eye and she's seeming like she's not really telling all the information. You're kind of going, okay, I see how this could have happened. Not that you, not that I'm saying that that's okay, but I'm saying that you're seeing how it happened. Oh, totally. At the same time, you're, you know, she had a baby. And so you're with her and feeling like, and you understand why she's not saying my husband just did this to me and you know what she, why she's holding back. So you see both sides of it and you're with her, but you're at the same time, you're not saying, oh, that the sheriff is necessarily evil because we can't really think of him as necessarily an evil person. We can think of him as like not effective or bad at his job or not a good listener or whatever, but we can't think of him as like being actively as evil as he really is at the moment. No, for sure. I mean, you know, I think the thing is, is that I mostly am sometimes just frustrated by procedure in real life where I'm like, come on, we all know. (laughs) We all know she's not lying. That that, that would be crazy. Like, just go ahead and arrest someone, please. Um, But okay. So you have a writing credit on Stolen in Plain Sight. And did that like, did that come after the fact or were you a part of the script from the inception? Um, it was just because of all the rewrites that I did on the script during in pre-production. I think okay. I rewrote, I rewrote the script four times in pre-production, which was a very short pre-production period. So, um, it was, yeah, I, I, yeah, the script was, and that had a lot to do with like, you know, a lot, a lot of times like the script is laid out in a certain way. And so it's like, then we're, like I said, we're laying it into the location. So in that one, just laying it in and getting the characters, like, for example, like, um, you know, the Geraldine character that was, um, we, this uh, actress, Sylvia Grace Trim, she's so amazing. And we had access to her. And I said, I have this character, I'm going to make it for you. It was actually originally, it was called the character was Gerald and he was in one scene and he was just in the elect. He was just in the office and he's just there to say, we can't turn your electric on. That was what it was in the script. But I was like, no, let's make him like, let's take, let's make it. Well, we made it Geraldine. And then she becomes like really integral into the whole conspiracy of the town. And she's the one that's hold. So like, she's the one holding the baby, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge rewrite. Right. Her her mom is the clipboard lady. Oh yeah. Like I, I love, I love like my favorite thing is twists and turns. So like I'll, I'll always add in like different twists and turns in these films, like little things. I love doing twists. 
Because that's definitely like whether or not the director has a hand in the writing to a certain extent is a question we have a lot on this show, especially because it seems that Lifetime has gotten better and better to writing towards like commercial breaks, if that makes sense, where the film sort of rests for a moment where there's obviously going to be a commercial. And I have to know what is the magic behind that? How does that work? Oh, the commercial breaks. Um, Yeah. Like, I feel like sometimes you find like a natural resting point in the film and it's obvious that they shot around that. Yeah, they they shoot for where we deliver in nine acts Mm -hmm. uh, for so. um, But what's so brilliant about it is that even in my um, like the work that I do in films that don't go to lifetime, like just other movies, the what I've learned in working in that format is so relevant. I think more than, you know, we think of like, we think of films in like a three act structure. So a lot of times, you know, you'll have your act one break and then you'll have your, your two with your, you know, act two, which is like the longer one with the, with the sort of, you know, midpoint, this is like traditional. And then your act three with, you know, where you kind of wrap it up. Right. And like, but when I apply the nine acts kind of theory, that lifetime uses like just in my mind to like other things. It's so accurate in how things should really be like in how films, just general films should work. It's really brilliant. And of course they do it with commercial breaks and you do have to keep, keep the commercial breaks in mind because commercial breaks can allow for the, the feeling of passage of time, um, you know, where you may not have to like relay that. So when we deliver, the films they're delivered um, with those act breaks in mind, with those commercial breaks in mind. Yeah, that's okay. That's so interesting because I've wondered, I mean, I'm a writer myself and I've wondered that for a a long time, how that's always sort of so timed out and it makes sense. Nine acts. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Because certain, especially I think in the beginning of sort of TV movies being made, they didn't always play to that at all they would sort of just sometimes abruptly interrupt scenes and put a commercial break in right so yeah like i'll always go for like the cliffhanger like i always try to make the end of the act break even if it does interrupt like a a long scene i always make like there should be a cliffhanger moment right like what's gonna what's gonna bring the person back like you know, rather than like finishing something up nice and tidy, like I'll go for like, oh, this is our cliffhanger. This is our cliffhanger. And, you know, we, 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 we nudge them here and there, like in the edit. Um, but they, uh, you know, yes, that's, there is, there is a delivery format that, um, you know, that is, that is out there. That is how they're, they're supposed to be delivered once they're, they're ready to go. And so, yeah, you, you work towards that. And then, they can be written in the script that way. Um, I'm always thinking about them, like where they are, right. where they fall naturally. Um, you know, like I always think about them when I'm shooting and stuff like that. And sometimes you'll think, oh, this is the act break. And then you're like, oh, actually it's here. We can, be, you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's usually pretty much as we kind of imagine it, you know, nudging here or there. I know that some of you out there are the way I was a few months ago and sleeping on a saggy, baggy mattress that doesn't offer your adult body the support you need. If your bed might as well belong in a frat house, listen up. Helix Sleep is it, baby. 
Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just about two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Everybody's unique and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They've got soft, medium, and firm mattresses. If you're one of those people whose temperature skyrockets while you're sleeping, they've got cooling options. There's even a mattress that's ideal for plus-size folks. I took the Helix quiz and was matched with the Helix Midnight Lux. For years, I preferred soft mattresses and didn't mind tossing and turning the way that I did. Now I prefer more of a medium firmness and sleeping on my backer side. As I've gotten older, what I need in a good night's sleep has changed, and this combo has been working so well for me. It's the most comfortable bed, and I wake up really well-rested and in less unnecessary pain. A noticeable difference for me is that my migraines have decreased since sleeping in this new bed because I'm getting the proper support my body needs, and that's huge for my productivity, my mood, everything. So if you're looking for a new mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress you're matched to, and it will come straight to your door shipped for free. Helix gives you a 10-year warranty, and you can try out your new bed for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I think you will. Don't just take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Just go to helixsleep.com, that's H-E-L-I-X-S-L-E-E-P.com slash mother may I and take the two-minute quiz. They'll match you with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mother may I. This episode is sponsored by Factor. Okay, here's what I love about Factor meals. They make eating better easy. They're fresh, never frozen. They take two minutes in the microwave. You get to pick what meals you're going to eat. Over 35 different recipes are available to you to choose from. Their delicious recipes are chef-crafted and nutritionist-approved. They are very filling. Like, not too much, but they're perfectly filling. I had the keto meal last week. I've been doing the keto meals basically. And there was one day in particular that I just remember going to bed and being like, I'm actually full. Like I ate hours ago and I'm actually full. Normally I need a little snack snack. You know, I get up to the chocolate after dark, but I was totally full, completely satisfied, and my meal was delicious. You can also do calorie smart meals, vegan or veggie, and protein plus. There's also other stuff you can try as well. You can get as much or as little as you want and reschedule or pause at any time. Personally, I get six meals. You can go up to 18. That's what my boyfriend does. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash mothermayi50 and use code mothermayi50 to get 50% off. That's code mothermayi5050 at factormeals.com slash mothermayi50 to get 50% off. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers? I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, so I'm going to get totally skewered if I don't ask a ton of questions about this. But we talk so much about wardrobe on these shows and I've heard conflicting things. One of the themes I've heard in terms of how these how wardrobe works in these movies is that the production companies have a stock closet that is changed up every few seasons and that's what wardrobe is pulled from. I've also heard that there's people who come on specifically and pull items individually. And I know neither of these movies that we're talking about specifically are necessarily ruled by fashion. I think like some of the ones that are really just like glaringly bad fashion moments are the ones like, you know, bling ring where they're supposed, it's supposed to be a movie about luxury and, and fashion and like, you know, all this, sort of like girly details, rich stuff. How does how does that work? How has that worked on the different productions you've done? So, I mean, I can speak for myself. Like, I don't know how other directors, like how they envision like wardrobe and stuff. I, I find like, you know, I'm, we've, we've done every film that I've done has had wardrobe purchased, rented, or brought in. And I, you know, there, a lot of times I, I pay a huge amount of attention to what people wear, you know, like I'm, you know, generally, like if it's something like, if it's something like really important, like the, the general style of the person and also like what they wear, like I'll have like very detailed conversations with my, with my like costume department, wardrobe department and like go over those things. Um, and then I let them sort of like act it out and do their job because like, I have to sort of like, you know, like I, I, I give control to that, you know, to the people, like I talk about like what I think of the character and then we come up with ways to do it. We see what the, you know, the character's comfortable with. And then because with continuity and stuff, they have to like maintain all that. It's, you know, when you're dealing with like several days. Yes, absolutely. You know, they and have their, their whole thing to do. So I'll create arcs and I'll have like feels for scenes and I'll approve stuff um, and everything like that. But that's generally in mine. I don't know like how, you know, I'm sure that there's like ways that like it could be done badly. Like I always try to make sure it's done really well. And I, you know, make sure the films, everybody looks good. That's always my thing. That's like, does the actor, um, look good? And do they feel like they look good? And do they feel good in what they're wearing? Because I don't ever want the actors to be like uncomfortable in something. And then like that affects their performance. So that's like the most important, like if they, you know, if they like what they're wearing or feel it, it fits the character. Right. You know? I mean, cause obviously like you can't be micromanaging wardrobe, but I do think sometimes it's overlooked a little bit in the lifetime world, how much that's just as much of an important expression as so many other elements of filmmaking, um, because it's what everyone's seeing on the person at any given time. And um, it can be used to, you know, yeah, tell I mean, so much about a character. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the director's choice. Like if it, characters are on if you watch a movie and the character is wearing something that's not good I mean that would be like someone chose that or someone approved that or someone said they wanted that and like the director said that was okay so I would say that would be the director <laughs> right do you know what I mean like and oh then, I and know also, what you mean I mean, but, yeah yeah so like I I 
I mean, we, it doesn't really matter like what the budget is. You can always find a way to like make the clothing look nice. And there's so many skilled and talented people that are available to like do that. I've never had a problem. I mean, you know, and also I know that like, especially with the romantic thrillers, like I want to make sure the people look good. You know what I mean? Like they have to look good. Like that's the style of the film. And so like, I really, you know, and also like make sure the women look beautiful, the men look really sexy and like, you know, like I, I really want to make sure, you know, makeup, hair, everything is just to a T, you know? And even with films like stolen in plain sight, like I had her wear the same costume the whole time. That jacket, I said, I imagine her go like a leopard jacket and like bell bottoms, like in a Southern town, like she'll stand out. She'll look like she's from the city. And that leopard jacket, it's actually my jacket. Is it? So, oh my God. I will. I'm yeah. a leopard print girl myself. So I was drawn to it. Um, and I loved the yellow sweater she was wearing at certain times too. Right. So like we did the scene. So like, that was a really great one too, where I was like, you know, the sister is the doctor. So she's got like her doctor clothes. And then when she shows up, of course, I'm like, well, she shows up, she doesn't change her clothes or go home. She just drives like, cause you know, and I'm like, so she shows up and then they like dig, there was a scene that was cut out, but they were, um, before they find the gun, they, um, they're digging through, like looking for the gun and they're finding all the old clothes that were left you know, in the cabin. So mm-hmm. all those, all those clothes they're wearing are like cabin clothes, like the mom's like a uh, old jacket or, you know, like these kind of old clothes. Uh, you know, if you notice in the scene um, with uh, where, where the sister, oh gosh, what's the sister's character's name? Um, Betsy plays it. Teresa, Teresa, um, you know, when Teresa goes to the cabin, you know, when she goes looking for Dylan, you know, she's wearing like these old acid wash jeans and like these kind of like funky socks. And yeah, <laughs> and it's all stuff from, and she's got like double denim on, you know, like she has her denim jacket that w- that she was wearing the night before, like when she obviously showed up. Um, but she's got these like acid wash jeans on. It's like, she's wearing clothes from the cabin, you know? Yeah. 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 Like old, old, do you okay so for suburban swingers club where was like okay i know i'm gonna sound like i'm on a like a wardrobe thing where is it like sourced from i know that obviously they're going out and they're getting their own stuff Uh, do they go to like a store and go get this stuff are they doing a lot of like getting a lot of loans from people like what's how, how is that working so, oh, or in um, in which one in suburban? suburban swingers club or wait in stolen in in first suburban swingers club? Yeah, that stuff would be purchases. Yeah, that would have all been purchases. Okay, you know, and that would have been like like there would have been a lot of I mean a lot of attention was paid. There was a huge wardrobe in that film, and there was a lot of attention being paid to it. It was it was done very, very well. And, um, it was, you know, I would say, yeah, there was, there was no lack of, of options in that film for sure. Um, the, the, uh, costume designer, oh my gosh, let me think if I can remember his name. Um, John Houston, right? Yes. Yes. John Houston. Yeah. He was great. The fourth. Yes. Um, John Houston was so good. Um, Yes. He was really amazing to work with and he was so good. Like he had, I mean, just so many options and so much detail, like, 
that production, you know, I mean, all the people that works on that production were just so spot on, like they had everything prepared and it was really fantastic. Yeah, he's done. I'm looking at his IMDb right now and he's done a lot of lifetime classics, I would call them. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer to this is no, but do you have any say in how the movies are marketed or oftentimes we notice that there's double titles, I like to call them, where they have a working title or I guess a title that's presumed to be the title on certain versions of posters and then it winds up being marketed under a different title. Do you guys have any say in that or is it once it's Lifetime's property, they do whatever they want with it? Yeah, I mean. When Lifetime purchases, so the films are made, um, the films are made, even if they're from Lifetime approved scripts, that's, they can go anywhere, right? And they do internationally, right? Right. And the, so Lifetime purchases the movies. So they're made, they're made with the potential that they could be a Lifetime movie, but you could technically sell, they're, they're not, Lifetime doesn't have any, like, say in their production. Right. So, so once they're made, I, I don't know much about it, but I know that, yeah, once Lifetime purchases them, um, yeah, they can, the names often change. They might have, I think sometimes the producers suggest other titles or they come up with it. I'm rarely, I'm not usually, I mean, I'll hear like, oh, we're thinking this or that, but I, I'm not a part of that. Like all some, I have no idea what they come out as sometimes. So in terms of like budget, because I think this is another thing a lot of people ask questions about, I feel like obviously anyone above the line is probably taking up the majority of the budget. But in terms of like the actual sort of, you know, day to day of making these movies, where does the majority of the money go? Um, I would say like. I would say the, 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 the budgets on this, on these films are pretty egalitarian in that the above the line isn't like a huge part of it. Um, I would say like a most, most of the um, production expenses. And like, once again, I'm not completely involved in, I'm not involved in like the budget making or anything like that. So, so I, I might not even know the actual production budget of a film I'm on. I might have an idea or like there might be, it might be suggested or someone might say something, but I don't really know what the production budget is of the film, um, that I'm going into often. So that's interesting. Yeah. So because I, because the producers take care of so much, um, like, I don't know how much, you know, a location's costing, or I don't know how much an actor is making, or I don't know how much the crew, you know, like, I mean, I might know, like people might say things to me, but like, it's not information that's given to me. I don't see the budget. Okay. So, but that doesn't mean I don't understand where the money's going because obviously production costs are constantly, you know, a concern in any film. So I would say like, I mean, it's all like the, the, it's really just, you know, the crew and shooting everything and all the, all the actual like people there on the day, you know, like, because the crews are pretty big sometimes and it's like a full crew. So, you know, it's the amount of days that we shoot, that goes, I mean, the locations, um, are probably, you know, 
a big part of it. And, you know, it depends, like, you know, there, cause I'm always looking for ways to simplify things for the producers and for myself, because when I have like a limited amount of time or a limited amount, and this is on any film, this isn't just lifetime specific, this is any film. But when I have like a limited amount of resources, you know, I don't want to like spend three hours or four hours, you know, moving, you know, doing a new setup or doing something else, if I can find a way to simplify something, because I think I said on the last one, I was like, um, someone's like, you know, they, we were talking and I said, oh, I, I like to simplify the shots and complicate the characters. Right. Right. So, so like if I can play something in the same outfit or in the same moment, I would prefer to do that and give myself more time to complicate the story or the characters versus like spending time on things that I know just from my experience of like directing for 20 years, like, Oh, we're not going to use that. This is going to be really important. You know, like I just know. Right. Yeah. That's such an important skill to have too. That's like, that's, I feel like one of the most important parts of the job, if I'm being honest, just from the the outsider's perspective is having that knowledge of (laughs) what doesn't need to be done or what's already done or what's not going to make it anyway. Right. It's like, or yeah. Like what do we really like need here? Like what, because you can get hit with all sorts of crazy things can happen in these films, right? So like you could wake up one morning and they could say, oh, you know, that house that we got yesterday that we are filming, we filmed half the movie in. Well, today we don't have it anymore because X, Y, and Z or something happened. I mean, that's not happened personally, but, or, you know, I, or we're not, we don't have access to this or we don't have, we need to make a change for this or oh we came across this problem and so what I'll do is I'm very good at sitting there and I say okay give me a minute and then I restructure everything in my mind like (laughs) (laughs) and then I go okay this is what we're gonna do so we're gonna take this scene and we're gonna film it here and then what that scene that we had over there we're gonna combine it with this and we're gonna like I just like matrix it in my mind like you know and then figure it out and then I come up with a plan of how we're gonna you know, go around problems. And that's with anything that I shoot. I'm always like trying to be in the moment with what's happening and like what we've done and what, you know, the future, you never know what the future holds, you know? So you have to be like good at being nimble. For sure. I mean, it's, I don't know, talking to you, it's so interesting because I feel like I respect directors so much. It's an unbelievable amount of work. Like, it's just crazy. And then, um, you know, just sort of some of the stuff that we've talked about today and and before this, I, I, I'm kind of like just blown away by how much thought and personal touches go into this. And I know that sounds a little dumb to say, because obviously someone making a movie is going to be thinking a lot about it. Um, but some of the personal touches you've described to me are just like, I, I guess they were outside of what I thought really was going on with some of these movies. And now that our audience has had an opportunity to hear a little bit about you, is there anything that you would maybe recommend viewers of these movies look out for when they rewatch? I know I'm going to be watching another one of your movies tonight, the, the one that I haven't seen uh, seduced. Um, is right. there anything to look out for that maybe might be an interesting wink to our, our viewers now that they know to look out for it? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think if 
I, I love this. Now, mind you, I am so enamored by the thought of like looking at these films as you would in like a film theory class or something like that <laughs> and breaking them down. And this is a very, it's an, and really deep diving into them. Um, I would say for my films specifically, um, I would look at uh, the ways that I would look at, I think if you find anything stylistically similar, look at my love scenes. Okay. Um, I love, I love doing them in a way that's very, that's different. And, and, um, you know, the way that I film those, I think is a very unique and fun process. And then, um, I would say if you want to look at like little, like, like little clues or something like that, suburban swingers club. Um, I remember Ken and I wanted to make it like a white party or something. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, when they come into the, uh, key party sort of swingers what if everyone's wearing white but I think that that the execs thought that was maybe like too culty looking so we have everyone wearing purple if you notice all the guys are wearing purple ties and so they're kind of like a little more subtle you know like kind of uh uh you know, grouping of them little things like that are fun it's um, just the suggestion of a cult exactly <laughs> it's it's cult light right yeah it's just I mean it's a theme it's it's a party theme you know um I love that house did too, you swing way, to so get great. in preparation for the role of director of this movie like <laughs> how much I have I have well that was the thing so it's so funny so so often like I'll be on these things and I'll be like that's why I always say like women should like direct all these movies. Oh, for sure. And I'm, glad, I'm glad like more and more. I mean, nothing against men that direct lifetime movies, of course, but I'm like, women have so much like life experience. Like, you know, like even when I do like second unit directing or something, I'll be like, Oh, like I've been pregnant. I've had miscarriages. I've been to swinger parties. I've uh, been punched in the face by a guy. Oh I've God. had, you know, like, so like I've had all these things like happen to me. Right. In real life. So like when I like draw, when I like actually like act them out, like they're coming, it's not coming from like an imaginary place. Like it's coming from like the real experience of it. I mean, obviously we did like the key party, which I think is kind of fun and kitschy and like suburban swingers club. Like I love it. Like the key party aspect. Is, I like, do really too. Fun. It's got this like very like, um, almost like, you know, Stepford wife kind of like you know, you know, it just feels like from another time, like it's like still going on, you know, I love that. So, but you know, the idea of, um, you know, just, and also like how women view sex, their sexuality. And like, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I just like, I guess I just take it from my own experience, right. Like my own life, you know, like, and, and try and, place those things in there um, and just do honor to them. Cause I know like, you know, it's just, a, it's a huge, it's a huge responsibility. Right. I yeah. I, I, I agree with you. There's something very special about 
I'm women directors making what is, you know, branded as television for women. I, I, you know, I definitely think that you can tell when there's a woman's touch on these movies. And by the way, I mean, how much do you have to consider the fact that, you know, with 10 million people seeing these movies, it's not necessarily always something that people are seeking out. Sometimes lifetime movies just happen to you. And um, do you have to take into account that like this is to, to be digested by anyone who might turn on lifetime? Because I, I feel like when you see a key party, that's almost a great way to sort of softball the concept of all of this to someone who maybe has a very limited knowledge of swinging, for example. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Like you're keeping that in mind, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, and also like, I think the thing that's very interesting too is something you brought up is I think like a lot of people are critical of lifetime movies uh, or they like to be, I think part some, there is an audience of lifetime movies that watch them purely to hate them. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I also think is interesting too, because it's such a specific genre of film that it's almost like, you know, like you're watching Sesame street and going like, oh, I know the alphabet, you know, like, or you're watching law, you're watching so law and order and you're funny. like, why yeah. are they, you know, like, why are they questioning this person? Like, like they already, like, it's like, they don't, there's a, there's a certain, like, and it's, this, I'm not like not trying to say like lifetime movies are by any means like Sesame Street or something. And they're no, it's they formulaic. Yeah. Like, right. There's a genre and there's certain aspects <laughs> of the genre that like you're winking. OK, so like, for example, like here's a good one, like Suburban Swingers Club. Like I take it. I'll take things, elements about it incredibly serious, like the miscarriage or, you know, the emotional like I play everything real. I don't play anything kitschy at all or like on, you know, like no wink winks or anything like I just like the characters just play themselves right yeah but there are moments where I get like I know what the audience like I know the genre of like the film like so for example like it's suburban swingers club so like all the you know you always have the weapons that people are like hitting people with and killing people with (laughs) so like I have Grant bring in the golf clubs right yeah like what's more suburban than like they're living on a golf course development you know like the golf club. So the whole time she's like walking around with a golf club, you know, like it could have been a baseball bat. It could have been anything like what's she going to hit so-and-so on the head with. It's going to be, I'm like, Oh, golf clubs. And then at the end, um, you know, we're working out how we're going to do the scene at the end where she finally gets Olivia. And in the location, there was this like bowl of like plastic fruit. I'm like, Oh my God, she's got to hit her with a plastic, you know, like with this bowl of plastic fruit and the plastic fruit. I go, the audience will love it. And mm-hmm. they did, you know, they, they get it. Like, like there's little funny things like that, like where I, you know, will play into like those moments, you know, like, but those are thematic, like plastic fruit bowls and uh, golf clubs and, you know, things that like fit the theme of suburbia all the time. Um, I think that there's, you know, I'm dying. That has to be like probably one of the most poignant things anyone has ever said on this podcast, which is like <laughs> you can't watch Sesame Street and be, you know, disappointed that they're explaining the alphabet to you. And it's one of the reasons why I sort of cringe a little bit when Lifetime 
tries too hard to be in on the joke because I like it when they're not self-conscious about what it is they're putting out there. I like it when they give me my hour and 27 minutes of just fluff without making a comment on it necessarily. Um, That's why I never do like deadly adoption or the James Franco version of mother may sleep with murder. I is, I don't, I don't do that because I just, um, I, I want to retreat into a crazy world for, you know, yeah. just a period of time and enjoy it. And I think it's one of the funniest things anyone's ever said on this podcast. Seriously, that's so such a great way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, because like, I'll just like, sometimes I'll read reviews and and I, I love them. Like I love even and I'm just like, I love that people are like watching it or like, you know, it's a lot of men too. like men will watch Lifetime movies. Oh, and then yeah. They'll, Put like I've had people like men send me like really like kind of like aggressive, almost like violent like comments, and I'm like, why are these guys watching Lifetime? Like you know what I mean? Like like expecting like right? Like was, was, was were we selling like Fast and Furious, and then they like watch Suburban Swingers Club, and we're like, what the hell? Like I I was it's it's almost like I feel <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're like. I, I think that there's like a, a group of, of guys that watch these films. And I would have to say, I mean, because these films are such great enablers of catharsis for people that maybe it's, it's a way of like, I don't know, like it's almost like they're hating on something. It's something internal. I don't know what it is, but they're, there oh there's so much misogyny and also perversion that happens when men watch these movies like the misogyny is out of control and i go through the reviews all the time because it's one of my favorite parts of the movie for that reason what people project yes. onto yes. The, the subject matter the women the actresses themselves can i read you a um it's not it's not a critique of your work it's about the actress in um Stolen in plain sight. This is by Ghost Dudette. Oh, so apparently it's a woman. Adored this film. 10 out of 10. My little girl, Gracie Gillum, has done it again. A spotless, perfect movie about a young mother and her son, Ryan, at a cabin uninhabited until Ryan gets immediately kidnapped. Moi, gorgeous. Gracie rocked my world in Teen Beach Movie and Teen Beach Movie 2 as the sassy, feisty, spunky, cute, adorable, spotless, precious, beautiful, cutie pie-ish, gorgeous Leela. And now she's doing it again. I adore this little girl. And to see her as a young mother, Melissa, sparked a fire in my heart. Heaven's little lamb lights the way in this beautiful yet sinister movie. And what's with all the negative reviews? If I were you negative people, I would stop what I'm doing and put a positive review in here. Although I had to admit, the kid who was playing Ryan was cute. He sounded just like Baby Yoda. This is like, this is such like a nightmare review to me because it's like not even really a comment on the movie. It's just this person like emotionally perving out on this actress. And um, there's, I think there's a lot of that in the Lifetime world because a lot of times it is actresses that are sort of, just really starting to hit their stride when they get cast in in these movies. And so they have that perfect fan that is, you know, they're not talking about Emma Stone. They're talking about their little pet project that they've been watching since Teen Beach movie. And they feel free to sort of um, 
you know, get this, uh, yeah, get this well, detail. At least it's a positive one because yeah, when you get the negative ones or like the ones that are like, just so like, I mean, I've literally had people seek me out, like dudes seek me out to like, like berate me for some lifetime movie. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty phenomenal. I think I had one guy, he was like, are you the person, are you the horrible director that made seduced or something like this? And I I remember the guy's name and I like looked up his name and it was like some like baby rapist also had the same name. And I was like, I was like, I was like, yes. And are you the so-and-so that... (laughs) And then, and then he became like my friend. Then he was like totally yeah. like laughing, and he was like, ah, oh, you know, like I love to win over the 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 guys that are like nagging my films or whatever. But yeah, it's pretty funny. Like some of the reviews you read, and you're like, you do know what you're watching. Like this is like they're 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 attacking the genre and like not the film itself or like. But yeah, a lot of the reviews, and that's why I appreciated what you guys were doing because I think a lot of the reviews are like plot based. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and like they're not really looking at like the sort of like deeper elements that go into them and not just by me, but by everybody. I mean, the actors like commit to these characters and these roles like seriously and, you know, give everything they've got and like really put themselves out there. And so, you know, like I said, after my audience, it's my actors. I want to make sure they have stuff to work with, you know, like I'm always trying to make sure that they're not walking into a scene and going like, okay, I'm saying some words and I don't know why, you know, like, I don't want them to feel in that weird place. So like, I'm always like trying to like amp things up or like give more emotion or feeling to something or like, give the scene some real juice, you know, to kind of like, give the actors something to play with, because they are, you know, I respect so heavily what they do and and, like what they can bring to something and, and what they're, you know, the feelings they're transmitting and, you know, and also, you know, the audience and what they're going through. Like, I want to make sure that, you know, they're, especially in dealing with serious subject matter, that it's coming from a place of understanding and empathy. And, and like I said, like catharsis, like, I think that there's something about the heightened level of like lifetime movies that allows people to sort of like deal with their own trauma. 100%. Yes, that is so right. Yeah, right in a way that's like light. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, you know, like it's a way of like just sticking your toe into some catharsis and like having this kind of thing that allows you to sort of feel. And I have like, I deal with some, like, I have like really, I watch my movies and I cry in the scenes, like some of the scenes or like when the actors are acting them, like I feel them, I let them, you know, like in the sad scenes, like they make me cry. That's my goal. Like, yeah, I want to cry. And like, I want to feel like the real sadness of those things. Like, you know, like when I'm behind the lens, like when Lori's crying for her baby, I'm crying. Yeah. You know? Like I'm feeling that. And that's like important to me that that's being transmitted because other people feel that too. And other people deal with those things. So, you know, it's not just me. Well, we have nothing but respect for you in this house. Well, thank you. You're fantastic. You. And I really look forward to one watching uh, Seduced this evening, but two, um, your upcoming films. I know that you're working on more and you can't really talk about them yet, but I'm just thrilled for you. And I'm so happy that you came on this show and explained a little bit about your process to us today. This was really, this was really great. And 
Um, I think you, you know, imparted some great wisdom there. And a lot of people say ignore the trolls, but sometimes all you have to do is wave high back and all of a sudden <laughs> you have your new biggest fan. It really is how exactly. it works. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. We will have any information you want linked in the description of this podcast. And um, Jessica, huge fan. We're, we're just so glad you came on. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. (laughs) All right. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh. Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every.